Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspired Churches podcast. We're a church in Union City that loves Jesus. Our hope is that you'd be inspired to grow in God's Word as reflected in loving Christ more and more every day. So wherever you are, be a light. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspiredchurches.com. Uh, I'm going to start off by reading a couple of dad jokes. Y'all ready for these? And you guys have to tell me if these are good or bad. If they're bad, just boo or whatever. But you, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you be the one to decide. Okay, you guys ready for these? Okay, dad jokes. So these are kind of like cheesy jokes for those of you who don't know what that means. Okay. Uh, where do you learn to make ice cream? Sunday school. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I just applied for a job down at the diner. I told them I bring a lot to the table. Okay, that was pretty. All right. It's not going to get any better, folks. It's not going to get any better. All right. A son tells his dad that he has an imaginary girlfriend. The dad says, you know, you could do better than that. The son says, thanks, dad. Dad says, I was talking to the girlfriend. Okay, okay. <laughs> my parents raised me as an only child, which really annoyed my younger brother. <laughs> That's... Okay, last, last one. Tell me if this is good or not. When does a joke become a dad joke? When it becomes a parent. All right. Are these good jokes? You know, it's funny because today we're actually talking about goodness. What? defines goodness. How do we define if something is good or bad? We're talking about goodness. Uh, we are in the middle of a series. Actually, we're coming towards the end of a series called Summer Gardens, and we've really been looking at the fruit of the Spirit and, and really talking about how this supernatural fruit can grow in our natural gardens. And if you've missed any of the installations, please go back to our YouTube channel or our podcast and check them out so you can get caught up. It's been amazing. We've been able to have some of our pastors here and staff here just bring the word to you every week. And it's been awesome. So I'm excited because I get to talk about the attribute of the spirit of the fruit on goodness. Goodness. Now, the reason why it's important that we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, is really, there's three reasons that we've been using as sort of a framework for this series, and you guys should all know this by now, uh, for those of you who've been with us the whole time, but really number one is this, the Spirit's fruit validates the credibility of our witness, meaning, does your life attract people to Jesus or retract people from Jesus? If you have the fruit of the Spirit, it validates the credibility of your witness, attracting people to Jesus. Number two, the Spirit's fruit validates the genuineness of our faith. Sometimes we have that looming question that leers in the back of our minds or deep in our hearts of how do I know that I'm really saved? And maybe for some you have a little anxiety about it or it kind of creeps up in moments of silence and you wonder like when you die, what's actually gonna happen when you stand before the Father and, and, and are you gonna hear well done, good and faithful servant? And, and maybe you're nervous about that. Well, the fruit of the Spirit is an indicator 
of the authenticity or the genuineness of your faith. And then number three, the Spirit's fruit is in conflict with the works of the flesh. In other words, there should be something within you that is wrestling. There should be a conflict uh, going inside of your hearts between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Between the flesh and the fruit, there should be some sort of wrestling or battling that is going on. If there is no fight inside of you, that's dangerous. If you have sort of waved the white flag of defeat, if you have given in and you're not even fighting against these things anymore, then that's not a good sign uh, because the, 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 pro, the producing of the fruit will cause a fight to be within you. And so it's not even so much what you're fighting, but that you're fighting, that matters. Yeah. Amen? Amen? All right. Let me ask you a question. Do you think people really change? Do you think people really change? Or do you think that they kind of just stay the same? I know people who have actually changed. Actually changed. Sincerely changed. But I will grant that that type of change doesn't happen nearly as often as it should. And it's because real change is real hard. Not surface change, not betterment, but as the Bible puts it, a metamorphosis, a transformation is difficult. And I would even go as far as saying it's impossible. Impossible. And yet the gospel says, not only can we change, but expects us to. Expects us to. So what I want us to do is go to the text that has been foundational for us throughout this series. If you would turn to Galatians chapter 5. You can bring your Bibles out. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Starting in verse 22, and it says this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, there it is, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we talk about goodness this morning, that, uh, Lord, we will be stirred, Heavenly Father, that we will be driven to you, my King. I thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, it's crazy because when I think about God's goodness, when I think about the goodness of God, there is something within you that begins to well up. When I think about how his goodness led him to the cross and how his goodness led him to an empty tomb and how his goodness led him to ascend. And I begin to think about the goodness of God so much that you can't help but begin to just praise him. That when you think about God's goodness, there's something within you that creates your heart to be in a posture of gratitude and thankfulness. When I look at the goodness of God, it lets me know that he will go at all costs to make sure that I am delivered because he is committed 
that there isn't anybody else that could have done that. There isn't anybody else that could have died for me. There's nobody else that could have walked through the fire and gone through every trial and seen me through every storm. There isn't anybody else that's as good as Jesus. There isn't anybody else that's as good as God. When you look at the goodness of God, you can't help but praise him. To know that our undeserving hearts is experiencing, even in this moment, the, the outpouring goodness of God. Not because somehow we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because he is good. He's good. And so this morning I want to talk about cultural goodness. I want to talk about connatural goodness. I'll explain that in a minute. And then cultivating goodness. So cultural goodness, connatural goodness, and cultivating goodness. Number one, cultural goodness. Let me ask you a question. Are you a good person? Are you a good person? I think most people would say, yeah, I'm a good person right? Sure. Yeah, I'm a good person. You think about kind of things that you do that are good, you know. Are you a good person? Now, what's interesting is asking that, our culture doesn't really get excited about goodness, does it? No, no, it gets excited about badness, right? Like, ooh, being bad and, you know, something daring and on the edge and, you know, we get excited about that. But not really about being good, you know. And that's because we have a real anemic understanding on goodness. The other day, Becca took the girls to the store, and when they returned home, I asked them, were you good? And they said, yeah, they were good. Now, what did they mean by that? Well, they didn't mean that they helped all, you know, a bunch of people to their cars with their bags, and, or they didn't mean that they went around the store collecting funds for the children's hospital. They just meant that when they say they were good, that they just didn't run their sister over with the cart or knock down shelves or set the store on fire. That, that what they really mean is that they didn't do anything bad. In fact, they were so good that they really didn't do anything at all. And that's sort of our culture's definition of goodness. Just not doing bad. Right? But what's interesting is that when we look at the Bible, we are given a very different picture of goodness. It's robust and grand and elating. See, our culture's definition of goodness is very relative, isn't it? We, we, we say things like, yeah, that's a good joke, or that's a good restaurant, or that's a good movie. We say things like that, it, meaning that goodness is now up to the individual to define, that the individual defines it, or even that a culture defines what is good and what is evil. And the problem is, is when we do this, when we begin to define ultimate goodness, then what we are doing is we are trying to be like God. And what I mean by that is we're trying to be our own gods. We're trying to be our own gods. See, back in Genesis, when God was creating everything, you'll remember this, that after he got through creating, he said, it is good. And he repeated it over and over and over again. So he created the skies. It was good. And the land, it was good. And, and what we see is he is the definer of good. And anytime we try to be the definer of good, what we're doing is we are trying to take his place in our lives. Because God is the one that defines what is good? Look at Genesis 2, verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And then the Lord God commanded the man, You are to eat from any, any tree in the garden. He's saying this is good. 
But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So here he's saying this is good and this is bad. Well, we all know that humanity ate of the tree. That humanity decided that it's no longer going to allow God to define what is good, but that humanity is going to set its own standard of goodness. That humanity will define the terms of goodness. We want to be the one that defines what is good. And why shouldn't we be? Right? We don't need an old book written thousands of years ago to tell me what's good. I don't have to be good and believe in the Bible, right? I know what good is and I can just do that. Can't I? Well, the problem is, is where does our definition of what good comes from? Our culture, where does it say that the definition of good comes from? Well, some will say, well, it comes from evolution. That as we've evolved over time, that, that through evolution, we learn what is good. The problem is, is that the, the, the moral understanding of evolution is really survival of the fittest. And so, it, so it knows nothing of standing up for the weak. It knows nothing of, of taking care and defending the vulnerable. Unless it benefits that particular need. Well, what about society? Maybe society, if we get enough people in society and enough of those people say something is good, then that's how we know it's good. Well, in some cultures in our world, they would say to love the gay community. Others say to kill the gay community. Well, which one is correct? Who's to say? That one culture is more superior than the other. Is it just personal opinion and preference? What about this? What's good is whatever helps human flourishing. Well, but by whose definition? By whose definition? What version of human flourishing? Hitler's? Stalin's? The white supremacist? What version of human flourishing is good? See, as long as goodness comes from inside humanity, then it'll always be subjective rather than objective. In other words, we cannot save ourselves from ourselves. Remember in middle school reading the book, The Lord of the Flies? Remember that book? And it tells a story of a group of young boys who find themselves alone on an island. And and so on this island, they try to develop some rules and some systems of organization. But what ends up happening? What ends up happening is they become violent and brutal. What ends up happening is the human heart is revealed. See, we need something outside of ourselves, something that is the very climax of goodness, something that does not eventually become good, but something that always was good. But not even something that always was good, but something that is intrinsically, inerrantly, con-naturally good. That's what con-naturally means. Is, is, it, it, it is, is con-naturally, inherently good. Well, who's that? Now, the word goodness in Greek, agathosune, is a very rich word. In fact, so rich that the English language doesn't really have a word that is sufficient to translate it. It it can mean merciful and kind, 
um, righteous and, uh, and of moral excellence. But in the Old Testament, primarily, it's used to describe not just God, but his essential nature. In other words, God does not just do things because those things are good. It's not arbitrary. It's not like these things are good and because those things are good, God does them. But rather, God does those things because he is good. Do you see the difference? He is good. In other words, what God does flows from who he is. Now, growing up in church, we kind of had this saying, and maybe you had this saying too, where, you know, the person was out there and they would say something and you guys would repeat it back. And let's just see how many people know it. But uh, we used to say this all the time. God is good all the time and all the time. There you go. God is good all the time and all the time. It's not, we don't say God has goodness, but God is goodness. You see, God is good. Well, if God is good, then why is there evil and suffering in this world? Now, we have spent uh, other sermons really dissecting that question. But let me just remind you of this, that it's a thorny question. But it's only thorny as long as a good God is in the problem. You see what I'm saying? That the minute that you take the good God, out of the algorithm, it's no longer a thorny issue. In other words, the fact that you can identify that there is something evil means that you have to point to a good God. A good God. Otherwise, there is no such thing as good. There is no such thing as evil. Listen to what atheist professor Richard Dawkins says. He says this, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect it to if at bottom there's no design. Because then that means there's no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Wow. And so because God is good, then that means God sets the standard of goodness. Goodness the measurement of goodness is whatever God says it is, and it's whatever God says it is because he himself is good. See, when we say something is good, we, we're, we're measuring it according to some sort of standard. If we say this movie is good or this restaurant is good, it's because there's some sort of standard by which we are measuring that movie against or that restaurant against, right? And ultimately, we have to decide that when it comes to good, what standard are we measuring that? And, the, and God is the one that sets the standard of goodness because God is good. And it was believed in the Old Testament that God alone is good. In fact, Jesus echoes this in Mark chapter 8 when he says, no one is good except God alone. Remember that when Nicodemus comes to him and he says, good teacher? And before he moves on, Jesus says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why are you calling me good? God alone is good. So why are you calling me good? Now, is Jesus denying his divinity? No. But he, what he's doing is he's challenging Nicodemus that, are you going to acknowledge, profess that I am God? Because if God alone is good and you are calling me good, are you, Nicodemus, calling me God? Do you see that? 
And yet here in Galatians, Paul says that we should expect to see this kind of goodness, the kind of goodness that's the very nature and character of God, that we should expect that kind of goodness to be exhibited in our lives. So on one hand, no one is good but God. On the other hand, now go be good. No one is good but God, but now go be good. Well, how does that work? What changed between the Old Testament and Galatians 5? Oh, my friend, let me tell you, it was the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus ascended, his Holy Spirit was able to come down in the inaugural service called the Day of Pentecost, where no longer was it just one temple, where only one representative was able to go into the very presence of God. But all of us became temples for the Holy Spirit to dwell in. So goodness then means to say things, think things, and do things that are in alignment with the moral compass of God. That are in alignment with the standard of God. Now that might be a little bit hard to think about. Because are you saying, Pastor Roger, then that, oh, by the way, my TV screen's off, so I don't know what happened there, but just... Wave at me when I'm getting close. Um, by the, if are you saying, by the, by the way, Roger, are you saying, well, are, uh, are you saying an atheist can't be good? That an atheist can't do good things because they don't believe in God? No, I'm not saying that at all, right? Can an atheist, you know, get a cat down from the tree? Sure. Can an atheist help somebody cross the street or, or help somebody move their furniture? Yeah, yeah, of course they can. Of course they can. You don't, you don't have to do good things. You don't have to believe in God in order to do good things. That's not the question. The question is, does goodness exist if God doesn't? Because, because the fact of the matter is, is that there's probably a lot of atheists that live better moral lives than many of us in this room. What do you mean? That's exactly what I mean. There, there are probably some atheists out there, I can guarantee you that there's probably a non-believer, an agnostic, an atheist, that probably morally lives better than you do. What does that mean? Does that mean he gets to heaven? No, it doesn't mean that he gets to heaven. Or does, does that mean she makes it in to heaven? No, it doesn't mean that she makes it into heaven. It, it only means that if your version of heaven means that how you get there is by earning it. But see, remember, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Right? This kind of goodness, this biblical understanding of goodness, this supernatural goodness has to be cultivated within us. Cultivated goodness. See, what we see not just with this particular character of the fruit, but with all of the fruit that we've been talking about, all of the attributes of the fruit, all of them, the goal isn't just to get us into Christ's kingdom when we die, but to get Christ's kingdom into us while we live. Paul uses the phrase to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That we love what he loves and that we care about what he cares about. That we live for what he lived for. 
And, and, and that kind of goodness needs to be cultivated in our lives. Because when it comes to the, the, the conversation of biblical goodness, it's very clear that we don't just have zero goodness, but that we are in deficit of that goodness. We're in deficit, and that it needs to be cultivated. Now, what's crazy about that is it can be. See, look what Jesus says in John 15, 8. Listen to this. He says, my father's glory is shown by you bearing much fruit. Later on in that same chapter, he says this, you did not choose me. I chose you and I appointed you to go and bear much fruit, a fruit that will endure. That's what Jesus says. So this kind of change, this kind of transformation can happen. So the question is, well, why isn't it? Why isn't it? Let me just share a couple of thoughts here. You know, what's interesting is that when somebody wants to begin to think about being maybe a good person, but they don't want to include God in the equation, then the problem is, sure, they can be good, but they have no grounding on why they ought to be good. In other words, if an atheist wants to live a good life, great. That is wonderful. I'm happy for her. I'm happy for him. In fact, I want them to be good, don't you? Of course. But that atheist has no grounding on why anybody else should be. Because good is relative. What's good for me might not be good for you. And what's good for you might not be good for me. You see the problem that we run into? And when we begin to think about transformation and why we don't see it, there's really kind of three thoughts I want to bring to your attention. Number one is one I've already touched on, which is the, the Bible is clear that as a result of sin, when it comes to goodness, we don't just have none, but we are in deficit with goodness. Paul admits this in Romans chapter 7, verse 18. He says this, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Now, what is Paul saying here? Is Paul saying that here that he can't do nice things for somebody? No, that's not what he's saying, right? He's not saying, can I help somebody tie their shoe? Or, you know, can I help fix, you know, my wife a plate of food? Or, or whatever, it is. like, can I do something nice? Oh, no, Paul's saying, nope, I can't do anything nice. Sorry, can't do it. No, that's not what he's talking about. So then what is he talking about? Oh, he's talking about something much deeper than just niceness, you see. The second thought of maybe why we don't see the transformation as often as we think we should or as often as we should see it is because I wonder if we really want it. Maybe we just don't want it. We want to believe in Jesus and go to heaven when we die, but we don't want him to disrupt our plans or our agenda or what we like to do or how we want to see our lives, or how we want to run our lives. So in our minds, we want to believe in Jesus. We say, Jesus, I love you. You know, we want to do that, but we don't want him to actually do anything with how we live any other time. 
It's like that guy who said, I like sinning and God likes forgiving. It's a match made in heaven. But really, I think it comes down to this, why we don't see transformation like we should is, I don't think we understand how transformation works. See, because when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, we're talking about a transformed life. We're talking about something supernaturally happening within our natural lives. And I think it's because we don't really understand how transformation works. Here in the West, we kind of understand it really in two ways. One way, the first way is, well, it's about learning all the right answers. That if I can learn all the right answers, then I'll be transformed, right? So in other words, the, the, as I'm getting more information about God, the more information I get about God, then the more I'll be transformed, the more information I get about God, the more I'll be transformed. And so those that have this understanding of transformation, they kind of see it this way. The thought is, if I'm learning more about God, then I must be growing in my relationship with God. And the goal here is to inform an old mind, but not form a new life. To inform an old mind, but not necessarily form a new life. And in the West, we have to be careful with this because our, our ideas in the West really is this, is that, um, is that uh, listen, if I can master truth, then I'll be transformed. But Christianity is different because Christianity is not about mastering truth, but rather allowing truth to master you. Look what theologian D.A. Carson says when he talks about this. He says, we want to master the Bible instead of allowing the Bible to master us. We think that somehow if we can memorize every verse and we can get it all down, if we can learn the Greek, if we can learn the Hebrew, if we can learn the Aramaic, and if we can get it all in, somehow memorize it all and eat it and consume it, consume it, and have all this information that somehow that will automatically lead to transformation. Transformation. But that's not how it works. For example, let's just say I got finished reading my fifth book on weightlifting right? Which you can see I'm doing a great job with. <laughs> Just because I've read five books on it does not mean that somehow that information has turned into transformation, right? I'm not standing in front of you today with a six-pack because I read five books on weightlifting, even though maybe I've mastered the information. But information does not automatically lead to transformation. Now, information is necessary, information is needed. I hear all the time people say, oh, I love coming to Inspire because every time we sit in a sermon, we learn something new. And that's great. That's wonderful. That's how it should be. That's awesome. But if that's where it ends, then we've missed it. We've missed it. The other way I think most of us understand transformation is by exerting willpower. That's kind of the second way we understand transformation is by exerting willpower. So, so people will come to church uh, because they want to be a better person. And so they'll come to church because they're like, listen, I'm, I want to get inspired. And then I'm going to go home and I'm going to really work on myself. Really, I'm going to really do it. And so now transformation looks more like self-help. And that if we could somehow pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and discover something within our hearts that we can transform. The problem is, is that when we think of things like selfishness, pride, idolatry, 
desires. Those issues, do they really go away simply by trying harder? Or is there something more deep, more fundamentally flawed? In Matthew 15, 19, Jesus taught that at the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. That at the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Sure, by my own willpower, I can become, I can make myself a better person. Sure, that can happen. I can make myself a better person, but I can't make myself a new person. Sure, by by sheer willpower, I can alter my behavior, but I cannot alter my nature. I need something outside of me to come in me and do the work in the deepest part of who I am. I need to allow the Holy Spirit to cultivate supernatural fruit in my natural garden. Because biblical goodness will never come of my own striving and effort. In fact, the Bible adds a layer to that and says that even our own attempts at goodness, that themselves are gross. Paul says in Philippians that he's come to realize that even his own acts of righteousness were garbage. That even when we attempt to be good, we, 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 we help somebody out with some money or, or, or maybe we offer somebody clothes or, or our attempts, our goodness, are even garbage when it's done by just sheer willpower. Well, Pastor Roger, how do I know if the good that I'm displaying is sort of natural goodness, in other words, um, a goodness that really just comes from me, which isn't really good, or supernatural goodness. How, how do I know the difference? Well, let me just ask you some questions, and maybe this will help us identify. How about this? When you live out acts of goodness, are you really doing it just to be self-serving? Or how about this? When you do something good, is it really because it makes you feel better? Right? The homeless person on the corner stop sign as you drive up and you try to not make eye contact, but you can't help it. And so you give him money because now it made you feel better. Right? Did you do it because you want somebody to reciprocate it back to you? Is that why you did it? Or how about this, and this is how we really know, did it require the help of the Holy Spirit? Because sometimes doing good is difficult. Sometimes doing good is difficult. We're tempted not to do good. Cheat on our taxes. We're tempted not to do good. Be self-serving. We're tempted not to do good. Lie to the boss or whatever it is. There's something with it. Does it take the Holy Spirit, you see? How does transformation work? Well, you're not going to live the life of Jesus unless the life of Jesus is living in you. And that is because goodness is not just niceness, it's newness. Goodness is not just niceness, it's newness. Look what Paul says here in Romans 12, chapter 9. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, and cling to what is good. 
Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Cling. That means hold fast. That means hold tightly. Cling to it. You can't just hold it, but you have to cling to it. It doesn't mean to casually hold on to or to loosely grip, but cling to it. Why do we need to cling to it? Because there will be tension. There there will be friction. There will be resistance in your life to let go. To, to let go of good and to cling on to something else. What are you clinging on to? Not because it is the quality of your faith, but it is the object of your faith that's essential. Tim Keller puts it this way. It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. He says, strong faith and a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. What are you clinging onto? Are you clinging, clinging onto Christ? Are you? are you? Are you going and grasping and holding tightly and holding firmly and holding steadfastly to the Canaan king who hung on the cross of Calvary on a hill on Golgotha? Is that you? Is that us? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. In other words, trust things that might look good or trust things that might feel good or or trust things that might make me emotionally feel good. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. I dare not trust how I want to define goodness, my standard of what is good, but I cling on to Jesus. I cling on to Jesus. I cling on to Jesus. Now this morning, you might be reflecting in your own heart and you might be like, you know what, Pastor Roger, here's the problem is, is you're right, I'm actually not that good. I, I, at the beginning of the message, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm a good person, but, but I guess compared to God, I, I'm really not, in fact, I don't deserve goodness. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I can't even live up to my own standard of goodness. I have my own standard of what is good, and I can't even live, to, live up to that, much less God's, Right? You're right. I can't do it. And, he, and even things, uh, that, that they end up turning out sort of for my own wants and my own desires and, and my own needs. Isn't that usually what happens? We, 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 as good and as hard as we try to be good, the reality is we can't. If I'm if I'm out if I'm if I'm working on the computer and and, and I and I'm at work and, and and maybe one of my daughters comes up and and, and interrupts me and, and and wants to complain about something and, and so I yell and snap at them and say can't you see daddy's working? See I'm being self-serving. Self-serving. And so now what I'll do is I'll go and, and maybe I'll buy her a toy or, or, or play a game with her. And, and, but only because I felt guilty and now I want to make myself feel good. Or maybe, you know, Beck and I are going back and forth and, and, and maybe she's angry. She says, I'm so angry. And, and now because she's angry at me, now I'm angry at her. And I said, well, now I'm angry. 
right? Or maybe she's impatient with me because she's frustrated. So now I'm impatient with her. And instead of sitting there and trying to meet her needs, I now make it about my needs. And so as you're sitting here and you're evaluating good, some of you might be feeling guilt, but let me just say this. There's a difference between demonic guilt and divine conviction. Demonic guilt and divine conviction. See, demonic guilt will accuse you and say, now run from God. Divine conviction will say, this is sin, now run to him. You see that? The Holy Spirit will say, this is sin, you need to get to him. The devil will say, this is sin, and you need to leave him. He doesn't want you. He doesn't want to see you. He doesn't want to be around you. He doesn't want to touch you. He wants something to do with you. That's demonic guilt. But the Holy Spirit says, no, no. See, guilt will make you run from his goodness, thinking that it's because God is trying to run from you. But the gospel says, no, his goodness is running after you. His goodness is running after you. His goodness is running after you. And if you say, listen, yes, I'm bad and I don't deserve God's goodness, I'll say, yeah, I agree with that. Yep, you're right, you don't. And, 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 And so then you say, and therefore, because of that, then God wants nothing to do with me. And that's where I have to say, no, 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 no. See, when you take it that far, then you are now blaspheming the mercy of God. You see, some of you, we don't go into God's presence because we feel bad and we beat ourselves up. We feel too unworthy. And so we say, God will never forgive my sins. Or maybe he's tired of forgiving our sins. And you know what we're doing when we do that? We're failing to lean on the good works of Jesus Christ. Instead, we're standing on our works. You see that? There's an old hymn that goes, well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and a thousand more, but Jehovah, he knoweth none. He knoweth none. Do you know how to cling to what is good? See, in, in churches, there, there's kind of these three types of Christians. There's this moralizing Christian. There's the over-psychoanalyzing Christian. And then there's the gospelizing Christian. And, and, and the moralizing Christian is very legalistic. It's legalistic. Say something like, oh, you're depressed? Oh, you're depressed? Well, that's because you're a wicked sinner. You shouldn't be depressed. Go repent. The over-psychoanalyzing Christian says, oh, you're depressed? Well, you need to see that God loves you just the way you are, which is actually a subtle denial of the gospel. Because, yes, Jesus loves you the way you are, and he calls you the way you are, but not to stay the way you are. That, that type of understanding is one that says, yes, come to Jesus, but no transformation needed. 
But the gospelizing Christian says if you're depressed, it's because there is something in your life that you are now serving as your standard of good. There's something else in your life that you have now taken and you've replaced Jesus and you put that as your standard of good, as your understanding of righteousness. And if you're cast down, it's because somebody else's eyes are more important to you than what God has done for you. You are clinging to something else. See, the gospelizing Christian will say, yes, repentance is part of it, but repenting of the right thing and running to God. As you stand to your feet, listen to this. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Would you stand? I wonder this morning, what is it that we're clinging to? I wonder this morning that when we think about the presence of God and you think about sort of your life, does it make you want to run from him or run to him? If I were to guess, I think that even though you're standing here, that even though you, you're, you've attended, you've made it to church, that the reality is, is that because we've clung to something else, that when we think about entering into God's presence, we want to run from it. Because we think that God's running from you. But my friend, his goodness is running after you. Are you running after him? Are you running after him? Are you running after him? Not because you are so bad, not because I am so bad, not because we are so bad, but because he is so good. Because he is good.